This episode is brought to you by Chapman University. From climate science to patient safety, genomics to drug design, Chapman University data scientists are turning massive information sets into life-changing impact. The future is unfolding in Chapman's Schmidt College of Science and Technology. Here, masters and PhD students join in cutting-edge research as they prepare to take the next big leap in their professional journey. To learn more about the innovative tools and collaborative approach that distinguish the Chapman program in computational and data sciences, visit chapman.edu slash data science. That's chapman.edu slash data science. All right, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco. I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. So grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. So in this episode, I would like to explain probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in uh, computer science and uh, and definitely in data science, as I found, uh, which is the concept behind concurrency and parallelism. Now, the problem of uh, human being is that they have the tendency to uh, to use these two terms um, interchangeably, uh, which is kind of wrong because, in fact, concurrency is quite a different concept than parallelism. So if you want to summarize, you know, if you want the TLDR of this entire episode, uh, concurrency is about dealing with many things at the same time, while parallelism is about doing all these things at the same time. Now, in English, probably this is not a very big difference, but for a computer, uh, for a CPU, in fact, or for an algorithm, that's a completely different story. Now, we also have the tendency, we humans, have the tendency to put behind the same English verb uh, or term, which is the concept of multitasking, in order to refer to both the concepts of concurrency and parallelism. And uh, I found a probably uh, one of the best pictures that, that I could uh, on the web uh, that I will report to the show notes of this episode at datascienceatome.com. And uh, essentially, it um, summarizes very, very nicely the difference between the concept of multitasking in the case of concurrency and in the case of uh, parallelism. In this episode, I would like to make sure that everybody understands why there is a difference between the two concepts, because understanding how where these differences are is extremely beneficial for your next project in machine learning and data science. Computers today are more and more uh, parallel machines, right? If you buy one of the most recent CPUs, uh, but even not so recent CPUs, but already running on so-called so-called multi-core architectures, which means that there were, you know, manufacturers were essentially packing on the same chip uh, multiple cores, right? Multiple CPUs, if we can say. And so these cores can essentially progress tasks at the same time, and they can run different tasks at the same time. Where is the concept of concurrency different from running things in parallel? Well, uh, it's uh, when we introduce some other concepts like input-output or 
diverse tasks, right? Things that are not necessarily supposed to run at the same time, but they can or they should be run, let's say, together. So concurrent tasks that are in progress at the same time, um, but not necessarily progressing simultaneously, define the concept of concurrency, right? And usually concurrency is not a, uh, a solution to make running single tasks faster. Actually, it can even be quite the opposite. <laughs> the, the concept behind concurrency is to use your resources more efficiently. And so as you are doing things, you might be doing other things that are probably not related to the first thing you're doing. Uh, but you still you still have bandwidth to do so, to do that, and so that's where concurrency is a winner. Parallelism, however, is quite the opposite concept. is not about the usage of uh, um, resources in an efficient way, but is about throwing more resources to the problem. And so here we usually refer to the multi-core machines. You know, you buy a CPU that has sixteen cores or 64 cores, right? It means that it can handle 64 different tasks at the same time because there are 64, let's say, CPUs internally that can run these things in parallel. Those who know me personally uh, probably know that I am obsessed by coffee <laughs> and caffeine. I have a nice example, hopefully nice, to explain the differences between concurrence and parallel uh, that refers to the way I prepare coffee, or I would prepare coffee. <laughs> so stay with me for the next minute. If I have to prepare one coffee, uh, I'm good. I have one coffee machine. I just set it up, warm up the water, do a series of tasks that need for, you know, to, to produce my coffee, right? Or to make my coffee. But if I wanted to produce, to, to, to make four different coffees at the same time, or in the, in the shortest time possible, what could I do? Well, I could definitely start preparing the first coffee and as water is warming up, I could start preparing the second coffee. And then I do the series of subtasks for the second coffee until it's time to wait for water to warm up again. And so I can move to the third coffee and so on. You get the point. So what I'm doing there is instead of waiting, I'm doing something else that brings me one step ahead in the number of tasks that I have to perform, in this case, four coffees. Now, of course, this is not really parallel, right? Because the second coffee will not start together with the first or the third and fourth coffee don't start immediately when I start the first coffee. They, they, they need their time, right? They need to to be piped in, in a, in a pipeline, uh, until I get to an operation that I have to wait, I have no other option to wait, and so I can move somewhere else, so I can uh, use my resources efficiently. In this case, my resources are probably time. Now, what happens in the case in which I am uh, rich enough to purchase four different coffee machines, right? In that particular case, I'm throwing four times the resources to my problem and I can just push the button four times on four different machines 
and uh, in, uh, in the same time that I require to make one coffee, I will make four. This is parallel, right? So the first example was making four coffees concurrently, and the second was making four coffees in parallel. When it comes to computer science or um, algorithms or data science or whatever, uh, you know, the concept of concurrency is reduced to eliminating waiting and uh, wasting of resources. If some threads and more on that later is just waiting uh, for an operation to be completed or the user input to be performed um, or an IO interrupt to be raised and so on and so forth, well, that thread is eventually looping and burning time at the least or burning CPU clocks at the worst. And so in that particular case, instead of waiting, instead of burning resources, we can just do something else. Something that might be completely unrelated from the, the task that you are putting on hold. And this is what happens all the time, for example, when we have uh, input-output operations, but also, for example, user interface operations when we are waiting for user input or when we are refreshing a UI, uh, for example, a dashboard in your amazing data visualization pipeline, there is the time in which you need to uh, plot things and make these amazing graphs about how this data will flow in and these histograms and statistical distributions appear on your screen in wonderful colors and so on and so forth. Well, in that case, you will see that you could have a thread only doing the user interface update at a certain frequency. For example, the frequency that most appeals your high so it should be something around 15 or 16 milliseconds, right? So every 16 milliseconds, let's say, you have this thread that we call update UI, or is a task that we call update UI, and it will resume whatever you were doing afterwards. Now, when it comes to multitasking, essentially there are two different ways of doing multi... Well, in fact, more than two. Actually, there are three, at least, that I know of, <laughs> uh, which is the non-preemptive, preemptive multitasking and hyper-threading. Well, in fact, uh, we have also multi-core, which is what I just explained, um, you know, the truly parallel way of, of completing tasks, which is essentially throwing more resources to the problem. So non-preemptive multitasking is, uh, well, actually was something that appeared in the first operating system and first hardware architectures from the 60s or 70s, uh, you know, when they were letting every program and every computer programmer be responsible for having, for example, a, uh, a UI in an operating system or another task. So they, you know, the, the, the end user, well, the, the programmer, in fact, was responsible for having these things uh, working and interleaving their operations when they were running together. So if there was something bad happening, for example, in the UI, there was a very good chance that the entire system crashed or the entire system was halted, right? Uh, many of us remember, for example, the old good times when uh, uh, when uh, a, a blue screen appeared very often, maybe too often in uh, the Windows operating system, or when, uh, for example, we were 
playing the solitary card game and all of a sudden the UI uh, stopped refreshing at the at the rate we were used to and we could play another game on that screen if you guys know what I mean. <laughs> so that was exactly the problem of non-preemptive multitasking. Then we have preemptive multitasking and this is what the operating system does whenever it is is juggling with tasks, right? So what happens there is that the operating system says, look, I have let's say 100 tasks I'm gonna execute a piece of each and uh, I will, let's say, I will select each task in a round robin fashion and I will execute, I will dedicate a slice of time, a slice of CPU clock, a slice of the resources of this machine to each single task in the same way. And so they all progress kind of in parallel, kind of at the same time. At least that's the feeling that you have. So that's what happens with preemptive multitasking. When I was um, uh, coding the Linux kernel a long time ago, uh, it was probably 1992 or three, there was one, uh, one branch of the kernel that, that became the, the, the main branch, uh, at least it was a, was a feature at the time, which was preemptive kernel. And that was very good for uh, desktop machines. Well, at the time we were using Linux for uh, server tasks for which we really didn't need to be preemptive uh, or have preemptive multitasking in place uh, because usually the server was running just one thing at a time while on a desktop machine you probably would like to have your uh, you know mouse pointer that moves at a decent with a decent reaction to whenever you indeed move your mouse and so in that case a preemptive kernel performed much better at least in terms of uh, usability so the feeling that the end user had with that particular uh, feature uh, or well architecture of the kernel was extremely beneficial was extremely nice now it's you know people don't know these things they don't notice as we don't notice that we breathe air and uh, uh, we take it for granted but uh, back in the days believe me it was not and then there is hyper threading so hyperthreading is something that is more sophisticated than just preemptive multitasking. And it's something that works together with the architecture manufacturer or designer, in fact. Uh, because hyperthreading is a way to delegate some, you know, a subset of the operations to another, let's say, department of the CPU. And so if you think about the uh, ALU, uh, arithmetic logic unit, is the part of the CPU that is responsible for performing arithmetic operations, right? Now, whatever you do in uh, in you know during your as you use your operating system, uh, many times it's not arithmetic logic operation, right? And so many times you're not using the ALU. Um, many other times you are, and so for these times, the what happens is that certain instructions are pipelined. Uh, into this other, let's say, department, into this other section of the of the of the logical core, um, giving you the feeling that instead of having n cores, you have probably two times that. And so, on computers of today, when you purchase a machine with six cores, and then they write n twelve logical cores, um, you know that's exactly hyperthreading in action, right? It effectively simulates two cores every one core, so the double the number of cores 
on the same core by using, um, let's say, unused parts of the CPU to uh, progress certain tasks on, let's say, thread two simultaneously as uh, it's running code on thread one. And so this is actually the way you can squeeze the resources to to your needs because um, you okay you might not have an exactly uh, hundred percent performance improvement in the sense that you are not going to have you know the performance of twelve cores when you have twelve logical cores usually it depends on the workload it depends on the task if your task is of course packed of uh, uh, or perfectly interleaved. Uh, with uh, instructions that go to the ALU and instructions that do not, then okay, the two pipelines, the two, let's say thread one and thread two, would be uh, filled at 100% each, for which you would have uh, two times the performance. But most of the times it's around probably 20, 30% at max uh, performance increase, which is still very good, you know, considering the fact that you are just you know, you're not adding any additional resource, you're just using them wisely. Now, there is, no matter what you do uh, as a programmer uh, to make your system more efficient, there is one thing that you cannot escape, which is speaking to your operating system. And so collaborate with your operating system because guess what? You don't have access or direct access to the hardware. And the, the operating system is the only part of your entire uh, architecture that speaks with the hardware, right? And so as a programmer, no matter what you're building, uh, at some point, it's time to speak with the operating system and uh, synchronize and coordinate the work that it has to do for you uh, when uh, certain requests have to be performed on particular hardware or not. The ways the CPU can do things in parallel have increased in the years. There's been a lot of research, there's been a lot of design of new architectures, and um, actually has affected the performance uh, and the quality of the software that we use today. And this goes across domains, not just for data science or artificial intelligence, of course. High performance computing is something that has experienced an enormous performance improvement and speed up because of research in hardware uh, architectures. And uh, most CPUs are uh, so-called pipelined. And that means that the next instruction is usually loaded as the current is executing. And so there is this kind of look ahead um, during the execution of instructions so that the CPU can always be one step ahead and um, understand what to do next. Because if there is something that it doesn't have to do, well, it, it would better skip it, right? Uh, think about this. If there is a branch, an if condition that the, the, the CPU knows before it gets there, that that uh, branch B, for example, should not be taken, well, then there's no point to execute or allocate resources for that branch, because that will never be executed, right? And so this, what I just mentioned, it's called branch predictor. Um, it's, uh, then it can happen in a speculative fashion or it can happen at compile time uh, with, with static analysis, for example, when you are sure that that branch will never be taken, then why is even there? But okay, that's a different story. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like there is a way for the CPU, for modern CPUs to understand what to do next. And this is, 
um, uh, one of the mechanisms behind the branch predictor uh, that tries to figure out what instructions to load next. Um, there is another strategy used by CPUs, which is uh, so-called out-of-order execution, when the processor can reorder instructions uh, if, if, for example, uh, it believes that uh, it makes things faster than the regular execution. So there are some instructions that if they are executed earlier, they might, for example, reuse some lines in the cache so you don't have to wipe the cache, make it dirty, or, or you can just optimize memory access uh, or uh, the content of some registers. It would not be wiped out um, because that, that instruction can be anticipated, of course, without changing the semantics of the program. So there is, this is yet another level of optimization. It's actually a very sophisticated one. So uh, if you are interested in, in these things, like there is, a, I can report some references in the show notes of this episode at datasensatom.com. There are a few books uh, that are, in my opinion, extremely useful to understand computer architectures uh, because I'm always, um, well, first of all, I'm fascinated on a personal level, but also I think that a good programmer should know um, computer architectures first, right? Uh, I'm not saying that you cannot drive a car if you don't know the internals of the engine, but if you want to be a good driver, uh, especially those who, for example, run on a Formula One driver, well, they definitely know a thing or two about engines, uh, especially when they want to communicate to their technical team uh, that certain optimization should be in place. And well, the same way as a programmer, you I'm not saying that you need to understand the chemical behind silicon, but uh, definitely the how a computer architecture is designed because that will help you a lot uh, programming things. Now, if you end up using Python all the time, probably you will be, uh, you will have a huge barrier in front of you in terms of, you know, you will not see, you will never reach the, 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 the computer architecture per se. But if you start going low level, for example, with the languages like C, C++ or Rust, uh, well, that's the time in which uh, it's probably beneficial to know on which architecture you are working or you are mm, developing your software. So I was speaking about communicating with the operating system. And um, and so here we are. Uh, it's time to speak with the operating system and to tell it what? Well, optimize the way the operating system would pick some threads or some tasks. Optimize the way these tasks are parallelized from the operating system perspective. And there is probably one only mechanism, well, there are several, but one of the most important mechanisms to communicate with the operating system is so-called system calls or syscalls. And syscalls, for example, in Unix, you have, ever, you have heard of uh, the libc library, uh, that library that when it's time to compile it, it gives you some uh, very painful afternoons or nights, <laughs> if you know what I mean. In Windows, we have the Win API and uh, uh, which is, you know, can be quite different than the, the Linux equivalent or the Unix equivalent in this case. Uh, but essentially what they do is uh, communicating from user land to kernel, right? So user land is the space uh, where you, where all your applications are running and kernel land uh, is essentially what the operating system is doing 
and so for example device drivers are uh, interfacing directly with the hardware and that's what the kernel space is right so when your application needs to for example run multiple threads is a multi-threaded application or it needs to access resource resources in parallel to something else most of the time these applications make system calls that is they inform the operating system hey there is something going on here i need to access this resource in parallel um, and so let's let's synchronize on that right so all these synchronization mechanisms and all these coordination mechanisms happen via syscalls so what are the methods to parallelize well you probably have heard of operating system threads or just threads right um, there are several libraries in uh, different operating systems and of course in different languages that allow you to use the operating system threads as a mechanism to parallelize parts of your application why is it worth mentioning because it's a very simple method it's uh, usually you know it's reasonably performant uh, you get parallelism for free in fact because you are just leveraging the operating system mechanisms that are already in place uh, and so it's uh, it's already there you just need to pack your task into a new thread and let the operating system manage that thread for you so it's very simple the problem is that, uh, and these are a bit of kind of the cons of uh, operating system threads, is that operating system threads come with a relatively large stack. And so if you have a lot of tasks waiting simultaneously, uh, you'll probably run out of memory quite soon. Not only that, there are also a lot of system calls that are involved in the, uh, in the parallelization method based on operating system threads. And uh, I'm not saying that system calls are bad, but if you can avoid them, that will be better. <laughs> because every time you call a system call, uh, essentially you are doing so-called context switch, which is you're switching from user land to kernel land. And that's, that's quite expensive, actually, because all the registers of the CPU have to be wiped uh, from user land and reloaded with whatever was running in kernel space. And then, and, and backward, uh, you have to do exactly the same operation backward. So if you have a lot of system calls, that can slow down your system quite dramatically. Another problem that I see with operating system threads is that when it's time to go back, you know, to switch back to your thread, the one that you have started from, it's not guaranteed that the operating system goes back to that thread, right? And so uh, it might not switch back to your thread as fast as you you wish it did it means the operating system um, also the operating system doesn't know unless you are under very special uh, scenarios it doesn't know which tasks to prioritize and uh, most of the times especially in uh, critical applications there are different priorities for different tasks the second mechanism to implement parallelization at the operating system level goes under the name of green threads so green threads are interesting because they are very simple to use for the, the programmer. The code uh, it looks the same like, uh, like operating system threads. They are also quite performant. Memory usage is uh, less of a problem in that case. And um, you are, you know, the developer is usually in control or in kind of full control over how threads are scheduled 
and if they want to prioritize them in a different way, uh, they can do so because there is one additional component that makes green threads interesting, which is the runtime system. So green threads are not operating system threads, right? Which means that they are threads that perform the same operations of the operating system threads, but in another environment, which is usually the runtime, and you can come with your own runtime. You can even build your own runtime in which you can define different protocols that the operating system didn't even think of. And so, for example, priority being one of them um, or timing, uh, different threads can be run for a longer uh, time with respect to others that have to be more reactive, for example. So um, these are the pros, but the cons is that indeed, you know, you need a runtime. And so uh, it's additional stuff to develop and uh, these things are usually not easy to develop. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's big parts of the application that are not really doing anything for your business, though they are providing, you know, an essential substrate for parallelization but uh, they are distracting you from what the real business of your application would be. And so when you need a runtime, the runtime will have a cost uh, in terms of development and also in terms of uh, execution. And then we have event-based loops. So these are probably the most interesting ones. They consist of registering an interest in a particular event and then let the operating system tell us when that event is ready. And uh, we still need a way to, let's say, suspend this task while, uh, while waiting. Uh, and this is essentially what happens, for example, uh, if you're familiar with Rust, uh, what happens with Rust futures. The, the benefits of um, event-based loops is that they are very efficient. Uh, and so I think this is probably the best you can get for resource utilization. Uh, and it also gives us the maximum amount of flexibility when it's time to decide how to handle the events that, that actually happens. Of course, issues with uh, event-based loops is that um, different operating systems will have different ways of handling these uh, kind of events and queues. Some of them are quite difficult to reconcile with each other, which means that uh, if you change operating system, you have to change that implementation and so uh, you know you have double the work or three times the work depending on how many operating system you would like to support when i said that uh, they are very efficient i meant of course efficient in terms of execution on the machine not for the programmer actually probably for the programmer is much less efficient because the developer still needs a strategy for suspending tasks that are waiting so now that we know all these concepts, I will stop here for now. And uh, in the next episode, we are going uh, to see how these concepts play together with respect to machine learning and uh, the algorithms we love to write nowadays. And uh, what are the problems of uh, concurrency um, that many people out there are ignoring? And uh, of course, they rely on uh, uh, some languages that mask all this complexity, uh, but of course uh, at a particular cost, which is performance. That's it for today. And uh, don't forget to uh, drop by our official Discord channel. The link will be reporting the show notes of this episode. Thank you very much for trusting me with your time. I'll see you there.
You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.